getting lumped up with Rocker Mike and Rob Rossi. I'm getting lumped up with Rocker Mike and Rob Rossi. Well, I'm lumped up, but I'm okay. It's gonna get lumped up anyway. You better call back the posse. Just getting lumped up with Rocker Mike and Rob Rossi. Getting lumped up with Rocker Mike and Rob Rossi. everybody welcome to another rocker mike and rob presents show today we have a very special guest jim bass night formerly jim of bass the night. Uh, no big deal no big, bass night bass sorry, night. Yeah, bass sorry. Night. no big no For, big word. formerly of the uh of the power pop band the mobiles founding member of that band yeah. and he has had a very long incredible career very varied different Thank things you. going on we're going to talk about all that he's got some new stuff out uh, he's also been involved lately with Big Stir Records, so shout out to Big Stir. They've That's been very right. nice to us, and, and we're happy to people. be involved with them. Mm -hmm. uh, before we start, I want to just have a little cheers. Cheers. Uh, we are trying a new beer today. It is called Motorhead Beer, as, Motorhead. as in the band. So cheers, bro. Cheers. Let's see. I never I'm, had I'm, I'm recovering, so I'm drinking a Coca-Cola. That's pretty it's good. Not bad. Not bad. Not bad. <laughs> I recommend it. For six dollars a can, it's not bad. <laughs> <laughs> cool. All right, Jim. So thanks for yes, coming sir. on. I really appreciate it. And uh, you contacted us through Big Stir and everything, and mm -hmm. and that was great. I was really happy to hear from you. Um, you got some stuff going on now, but just to have some context, I want to go back a few years. Okay. Now, originally, originally you're from Philly, right? Yeah, originally from Philly. Um, uh, Lived early in my life in New York, in Queens, and up in uh, uh, Westchester County a little bit in Pelham, and right. uh, and then uh, and then we, uh, we my dad got a job in Queens in Corona. We moved we moved to Corona for a while until I was about five years old, and then we at that point my dad decided he wanted to move to uh, to see back. To see. He see he was from Seattle. He was born in Seattle, which is kind of a rarity. Most people out here are not born here. He was born in Seattle, and he wanted to. He wanted me to grow up in my in my sister and uh, who was, you know, a child and 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 they wanted the kids to grow up in Seattle. So we moved out to Seattle. But I've always had a really fond uh, place in my heart for New York and uh, have a lot of friends in and there uh, and especially, uh, you know, musicians that have had a lot of, you know, connection with and stuff and written a lot of songs with and done a lot of stuff with. So I kind of feel like New York is is kind of like my home and. In a lot of ways, I've always been attracted to New York. One of the biggest moments of my life was the uh, first time I heard the New York Dolls when I for the first album first came out, and I had seen their pictures and stuff, and I thought they were, you know, that that they were well, these guys are, you know, glam. I didn't know what to expect. It could be anything, you know, it could be really arty like Bowie or something like that, or or uh, you know, something way out there. And I listened to them, and it was just uh, really the the most pure, simple rock and roll, like the kind that really drew me to be a musician and uh, to want to play the guitar, you know, and uh, it was just, that was a, a big moment. And I have come to find out that a lot of those guys grew up in the same neighborhood that I lived when I was a little kid. So I yeah. remember John, Johnny Thunders was from Queens and right. uh, Sylvain mm -hmm. was from Queens. Yeah. Um, and I've met, met a couple of people from Queens, like John Carlucci, who's 
DJ with a little Stevens Underground Garage, and yes, told me that he grew up right by Corona, right where we where we lived. So I remember, you know, I remember the days when I was a little teeny boy, and that's my first impressions of rock and roll. Is some of the bigger kids that my babysitters and stuff that had records like, uh, you know, the Watusi and all that early stuff that, you know, the, the Heartbreakers and Johnny Thunders and uh, the Dolls really championed, you know, bands like, uh, you know, all that early kind of uh, early girl group rock. stuff. Yeah, exactly. Or the yeah. early girl group stuff and, and all that early R&B stuff. And that was the, my first impression of rock and roll. And I was, I always thought it was really fun and uh, Elvis and the twist and all that kind of early sixties stuff. And, uh, and then, uh, the, and then, you know, and then we moved out to Seattle and I kind of got sidetracked now. other stuff. I didn't really, wasn't really that into rock and roll for a couple of years. Well, I was only five, <laughs> yeah, but, but it took me a little while to really get that interested in it again. I think that probably happened when I was about 10. I got a transistor radio, my first transistor radio. I started kind of putting two and two together with, uh, with, uh, you know, how cool, uh, well, these bands like the Beatles were and stuff. I really, it was sort of secondary to me. I was, when I was that young kid, I was interested in other things, you know, dinosaurs or whatever. But right. yeah, I just started really getting into rock and roll. It wasn't something that my family or my grandparents, my grandfather was kind of a rock and roll snob. He hated rock and roll. And my dad was kind of a jazz guy and he didn't care for rock and roll. So rock and roll was something I kind of picked up on my own. Now, I know back in 77, you, you briefly came back to New York City for a few months. Was yeah. that was that to get a music career going because of yeah. what was happening down in the Lower East Side in 77 and all that? Yeah, I was 19 years old. And uh, just to skip along in my life story, I don't want to be too long winded. But uh, I, uh, uh, you know, I, as I got into my teens, I got involved with a bunch of other kids that were into uh rock and roll pretty heavy we had and i was kind of supportive of a of a guy who had a little fanzine at, uh, called the district diary which is this wow. neighborhood in seattle where the kind of most of the record stores are and stuff like that uh called the u district and uh and we changed the name to chatterbox and that was my idea because of, of the johnny thunder song the, the doll song right, the doll right. Song, yeah and uh and we were all big fans of that and that was in that was when the dolls were, I believe, just breaking up, like in 1975. Yeah, they played in Seattle, and uh, and uh, and so uh, yeah, so but that was and that was a pretty big deal. That was where we met a lot of our friends that later on became the kind of early, early uh, kind of uh, Seattle punk rock scene, real early, you know. Right. And then uh, and so basically, we had this this fanzine and and put eventually put a band together within a few months. And played our first gig, which was one of the first. Actually, according to historians, it was the first do-it-yourself punk rock show on the West Coast. It was okay. like a, a week before the first one in London. Of course, New York is way, way the heck ahead of all that. But um, in fact, Alan Vega invented punk rock, the word punk rock, and I guess punk music back in. The, he was the first one I've ever seen use it as a member of Suicide, right? He was using suicide, that. exactly in nineteen seventy. Amazing. Um, yes. Seattle always had a lot of good musicians. A lot of great musicians had come out of Seattle, but they go there and they, they don't go back, which is also another thing that's wild. But there's a lot of great bands that had come out of there. That yeah. I'm shocked. You go through the history, even well, like we, a lot of those grunge band, a lot of these other, like a lot of the, the 60s, 70s. There were guys that were in Seattle. There was that out. whole. There, I mean, the 60s. You know this, Jim. There was that whole Northwest soul kind of thing. Yeah. You know, bands like the Sonics, 
the Raiders. The Raiders were from Idaho, but they Paul were from the Raiders. Yeah, yeah. Seattle I mean, was the big city. Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, the, I, 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 and, and the, the Whalers. The Whalers mm -hmm. were good. Too. Go ahead. And go, going to his point, uh, it is kind of a place in the country that's isolated. So when you're up there, you're kind of isolated from what's going on with the rest of the country. I think that's the yeah. point you're trying yeah, to make, right? Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. very, very true. Very true. And 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 it's funny. Lou Reed said that. Uh, he said that to uh, our chatterbox when they we talked to him. Um, I was unfortunately not there in the room, but he said like, "Yeah, you guys are always last, you know, as far as these bands from New York and London and yeah. cool places actually getting to an American city. You guys are always last, you know. We come here finally at the very end of the line, you know. But um, but no, seriously, um, you know, I get, we were doing that. We were doing this band, and we had this the show going with some other some other kids and. And uh, and we had this band together and played for about a, a year. And that was a band called The Mice. And our last show was opening for the Ramones, the first time they played in Seattle. It was actually the first punk rock uh, touring kind of national punk rock yeah. show in Seattle. Um, um, you know, the Dolls weren't called punk rock. You know, the Lou Reed, none of that stuff was called punk rock. Iggy, Iggy hadn't even played there yet. But um, but basically, that was in March. And um of 27 and and I met the Ramones and and the road manager uh, Arturo Fine. Vega the late Arturo Vega yeah and they were really they were really fond of us and liked us and uh, Tommy Ramone said in New York Rocker that we were the best band they played with on the on the tour and said a lot of nice things about us and um and I just was very ambitious and uh you know I didn't really think that the band would have the ability to go with me but I just decided to move to New York I was 19 and because, you know, Joey told me, he goes, that yeah, this stuff would really be successful in New York. So I went out to New York and uh, kind of toughed it out. And if you guys have seen movies like Taxi Driver and stuff like that, that's what that's what my life was like. That's what it was months. like back then. Yep. yep. Yeah, I was kind of I was Travis Bickle, but I but I didn't lose it like you did <laughs> <laughs> and or and or find it, depending on how you look at it. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're glad you didn't lose it like that. <laughs> wow. But wow. I, what I did what I did find was I found a lot of great rock and roll and I saw a lot of great bands. You know, I mean tremendous music that really inspired me for the rest of my life. And what was also, what was a major like other than the obvious Ramones and Johnny Thumbs and the Heartbreakers and stuff like that? Well, what was some of those maybe lesser known bands that you really liked at that scene during I'll that tell scene? you, there's some some obscure ones, and it's funny because they've actually have over time, you know. Sustained got, as, got like, bigger. A, bit. a guy named Joey Pinter was in a band called. Oh, Fuse. we know Joey very well. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was a band called Fuse, and I saw him, and yeah. I really thought this guy's really good. And no one really has, you know, talked about him much over time. But then he we, was we in the Waldos, and and his, I mean, he's just a great guitar player. And he and that band Fuse was really good. They had a bunch Fuse of great, was great. Songs. Yep. yep. Yeah, and um, I thought they were especially good. Um, I liked Robert Gordon and Link Ray. I mean, who wouldn't like oh that? God, a lot, yeah. you know. Um, I liked. Um, well, I saw some bands from out of town that were playing in, in at CBGBs. Like I saw DMZ. Um, mm -hmm. I saw the Dead, from Boys. the Dead Boys. They were there constantly, and I saw them a number of times. Yeah. Um, and I saw, of course, some of the bigger names that had already been out there with records, like the Talking Heads and Television and Blondie. Of course, I love Blondie and all that and dictators. Um, and, uh, and then I saw Alex Chilton with his, his show. Um, what big else star suicide. Uh, yeah. I saw Alex Chilton, but he wasn't in big star, but he was, he, at the time he was a solo. He had to put out a record on orc records at the time. Right. Um, right. And then I saw, um, 
you know, it's the suicide, which really was a mind blower. And uh, I saw Devo where they were cruising through town. I saw them oh, with wow. suicide actually at Max's. Um, I saw a bunch of bands. I mean, a whole bunch of bands, you know, like a lot of these bands that were kind of sort of, I won't say imitating or copying it, but kind of coming from that television, kind of Patti Smith, um, uh, Velvet Underground kind of vibe, like the Feelies and mm -hmm. the Erasers and all those kind of bands I saw that were kind of cool. And who else did I see? The Cramps. Saw The Cramps. Uh, one of my favorites. Great yeah. I was, I, was just, I was so many great bands I saw, and it was tremendous. And the thing that really inspired me the most, what the, the kind of net result of it all was that all these bands had singles, independent singles, and that's what was going on in England, too. And so I decided to put out a single when I got back from Seattle, go back to Seattle, and uh, and uh, I, uh, I put out a single. Uh, and that was like the first, or arguably the first, or one of two that were the first kind of punk singles in Seattle. And that was in that was in like December of '77. It says '77 on the label, but it came, right. actually was in the stores and until the next week, '78. But whatever. Bottom line, it was pretty darn early, and mm -hmm. uh, and then so you know I, that single was turned out to be kind of a a good PR thing for me in Seattle, and I sort of from that got together a, a new band, and that was the, that was this band, the Moberleys that you mentioned. The Moberleys, right? I wanted to ask you in, in late '78. Yeah, it took me about a year to kind of try a bunch of different uh, different things and right. different different musicians. I work with the band called the Mentors. You probably heard of I know the Mentors well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I work with those guys, and they backed me up wow. on a couple of things. And we did a did a show, a live show. That I went out there just in my underwear. That was a crazy show. Uh, you know, but I mean, yeah, I mean, shit. I mean, it was, excuse me. I don't know if I can say that. Is you can a, do anything you want, man. Okay, We're good. drinking on the show. Don't worry okay. about it. <laughs> okay, so, uh, so the long and short of it is I had a kind of a colorful early career and put together this Moberly's band. And um, and that's a, another whole chapter. And that was 10 years after that. I was that band was together, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that carried on into the uh, to the early 80s. I, I, you know, I know you came back. Yeah, you came back to New York City after that. Yep. And, right. Mm -hmm. And uh, I understand you, you know, you connected with some some local people. You were playing with Johnny Thunders, right? Briefly. Well, I did. I did play with Johnny Thunders. Um, I I played with him um, on a, a couple different occasions. Um, uh, one was uh, filling in for his bass player uh, and extensive kind of rehearsal slash showcase in a in a studio in, uh, in in Manhattan on 30th and 8th Avenue, Daily Planet yep. uh, studio. And then uh, one was uh, was just playing acoustic guitars in that same building. I was staying with uh, my, my friend there who I was playing in her band, and we later got married, Ann Dion, who was yeah. Alan's girlfriend for many years. And I was staying there at uh, her right. place in her loft, and uh, and Johnny happened to be there. And, and uh, you know, we sat down and played some tunes together on the acoustic guitars, and that was a real honor. And then um, I also, um, also the Moberleys played at his 30th birthday at a club called RT Fireflies with a band who was a good friend of his from Queens, Justin Trouble. Justin Trouble, he was, yes. He was like Justin Love now. And uh, he got up on stage with Justin Trouble's band and did uh, a, a mini set. And then we did, uh, uh, I remember we did I Love You by the Heartbreakers and uh, Can't Keep My Eyes on You and tribute to him that night. Nice. And then, uh, and then, uh, you know, and then it uh, seems to me that there's some other connection. Well, you know, I, I've kept in touch with, with, with Walter over the time, over time, and more, more with him than with Johnny. Uh, 
And uh, I saw Johnny a few times in, in L.A. when he came out there. And I saw him, of course, a bunch of times in New York. And I saw the Heartbreakers in 77. That was really incredible. That must have been amazing. Wow. Yeah, in 77 at the Village Gate. Yeah, it was a legendary yep. show. And I, I happened to get lucky. And Marty Thau, the manager of the Dolls, formerly got me into that one. And so, yeah, that was incredible. But, um, but yeah, I, you know, I played with a lot of different bands, um, you know, but mostly the Moberlies just played around the clubs in Manhattan. We played a couple of big shows. We uh, opened for the Romantics um, at the Savoy. I don't know if you guys remember that place. Um, big, yeah, yeah, vaguely. I think I do. Huge oh. club in Midtown. They were trying to compete with like, uh, you know, some of the big Midtown clubs like Peppermint Lounge and, yeah. you know, Bonds and some of those others. It was a big, it was kind of a big corporate place. I think it was run by Ron Delsner. Um, but yeah, it was, it was, we played that gig. We played, Pretty much all the clubs and peppermint. Are you uh, are you yeah. friendly friendly with Mike Skill from the Romantics? You know, I don't know him personally, he's, but he's he's, he's, he's up in your area. On, he's, yeah, he's I've seen him on. I've seen him on. Uh, I haven't kept in touch with any of those guys in Romantics. I yeah. I like their music a lot, but uh, Mike but was he, on. Uh, Mike was on our podcast about oh, great. a year and a half ago, yeah. I think. Fantastic, and he, he was he was great. I've kept in touch with him a little bit since, but. Uh, the drummer's yeah, there's amazing. Just, yeah. There's just something about there's just something about the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. And and I it, you know, to be honest with you, I've always liked music out of there, but I never got this comparison until the last few years. To it's comparison uh, comparable almost to like Detroit. To me. Yeah. Wow. Okay. That's that's an incredible that's that's no, really I, flattering. I, because it's like an area, it's like an area that I'm just gonna say it. I don't mean this in a bad way. It's an area that no one gives a shit about. Okay. So it's True. like it's like it has the yeah, ability. They do to now like because it, the, real estate is real expensive here. But the bottom line is, yeah, you're right. No one has given a shit about it. <laughs> I don't mean that in a bad way because I think that in places like Detroit and places yeah. like the Pacific Northwest, you have that freedom to kind of come up with your own thing without maybe everybody's eyes on it. I also see Cleveland be like that. Cleveland, Cleveland, well, Cleveland is yeah, similar absolutely. to Cleveland that way. Nice. Yeah, not too far from Detroit. Similar. Very yeah, true. Something funny. You yeah. know who's playing today in New York City? Who? Who? Blondie and the Dan. Blondie and the Dan. <laughs> I know. I saw that on yes. Twitter. Yeah, that's really well, cool. Well, Cap Captain Sensible, I think, is not part of the show. Oh, no? Oh, no. That's too bad. He's cool. Yeah, well, he's you know, it's funny. I mentioned about Seattle, and we didn't mention one of the most obvious names and probably the pivotal name in, in the fate of the history of Seattle music, and that's Jimi Hendrix. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, he, I mean, he forget Hendrix, that. I mean, to me, Jimi Hendrix passed away, you know, at 27. But I mean, he's a a, a tremendous talent, and uh, I mean, you can almost put him in a category with people like Elvis and the Beatles and all kinds of, you know, the real ultimate Bowie and the, the huge, huge, huge names of rock history. I mean, he's and he would, you know, he he uh, he kind of stamped Seattle, unfortunately in a way that was kind of, and I think it was combination of him and also the, the way the whole thing went down with the, the teen dance circuit and the Sonics and the Raiders and the dynamics and all those great bands right. is that Seattle was a place you had to leave to do your thing. You couldn't yeah. just be there and play rock and roll to be anything at all. And if, because, because the business in Seattle after the teen dance circuit kind of fell apart and was no longer cool, it was kind of replaced by the Hey Dashbury scene, you know, yeah. Um, basically. Um, and so all the kids that were hip, like had to go to San Francisco to do it. And like Moby Grape guys went down there. Others went down there uh, to, to make it and stuff in San Francisco. 
So it was like a place you had to leave and Jimmy left and blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, when I was a kid growing up, it, the idea of playing in Seattle was, was not necessarily because you had to leave to get notice. It was also because in Seattle, the business was really kind of what I would consider reactionary, like really it was all about covers and all about, you know, really you had to be a certain way. And I know you guys know this from living in New York. If you ever spent time like in Long Island, you know, or like yeah. New Jersey, they have like this, all the, the rules of what bands can do and what they can't do. If you want to do that, you have to go to New York, you know? Yeah. And so it's so club. It's in Seattle. I, I couldn't even name like what kind of clubs do Seattle have? Do they even have like an area where people go and, and practice and play this stuff today? Do they, do they, have an area like that I, you know it's really funny there's always been at places where people practice in seattle um and uh they it's in and now um seattle i guess the at least last time i looked at the statistics seattle real estate is second to san francisco and it's higher uh than new york city wow so seattle is real expensive it used to be when i was a kid you know, I was shocked how it cost, much it cost to, to get an apartment or any kind of little just flop house room in New York City um, compared to Seattle. But it's completely changed. It's real expensive. So Seattle's not like it used to be. But there's always been bands finding places to practice in garages and warehouses and, yeah. you know, in basements of buildings after the business is closed or or just, you know, bands sharing houses and practicing in the basement and getting complaints from the neighbors and blah, blah, blah. It's always been like that, you know? It's because up until like the era of grunge, basically, up until like the 90s, early 90s, yeah. Seattle's been a really cheap place to live. Um, lots of room, lots of places for cheap. I remember you could get a one bedroom for $100 a month when I first when I first moved out of my parents' house when I was wow. 18. Right. Yeah. I mean, you have to live in a cheap place and, you know, probably didn't smell that great, but it was a hundred bucks a month for a one bedroom. Two and hundred. That's why that's you why actually get a pretty good one. You know, that's why you'll never see. And I hate to say it, but you'll never see another scene come out of New York City like what happened in the 70s, exactly. because it's impossible for any struggling musician to live here. Okay. Yeah, well, I did. I did that, so I was maybe one of the last. You know, I did that for you, a while. You were, you were at the end of that time. Okay, because <laughs> I went there, and like you know, a lot of people say, "Yeah, you couldn't make it in New York." Well, let me tell you what: I was working fifty or sometimes sixty hours a week, on top of doing bands and playing at night and traveling all over on subways, and you know, and uh, most of most of the other people, the kids I knew that were from New York, they were staying with their parents. They had friends that could help them out with things. And I was on my own and it, it was tough, man, but I, I stuck it out for quite some time. And I love it. Tremendous sense of, of accomplishment and sense of power, you know, of being able to handle stuff. And I, it took, took with me for the rest of my life, you know? Wow. Well, it's an experience, right? Always. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Not, well, not only that street, street smarts. Of course. Well, that's what you get. So you get three it doesn't take long. It doesn't take yeah. long. Um, go, going through your bio, Jim, I was really curious to something. I, I wanted to make sure I asked you this. Um, you actually wrote a musical called Little Rock? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Tell, tell us tell us about that. That's interesting. It's, it is interesting. Well, they contacted me. Uh, this theater in Seattle contacted me to do a uh, to do the music for uh, this this show called Little Rock. And it was about the integration of Little Rock Central wow. High School in 1957, 
when yeah. the national when uh, President Eisenhower sent the National Guard to protect these nine black kids that were integrating this the first right. big major public high school in a major city in the South in 1957, and they hired me because of my knowledge of and my love for rock and roll and pop music and the blues and rockabilly and all that kind of stuff. And so, um, so I wrote songs kind of in that style for the characters and uh, with a guy who was um, uh, the musical director whose background had been more in musical theater and he'd done a lot of uh, plays and stuff and, uh, and musicals. And so he kind of helped craft it. And he also wrote a bunch of the material too. And there was a, another guy who had worked for PBS and Bill Cosby and a bunch of really cool stuff. He's from New York, a guy named Arn. I forgot his name now. Shoot, I've, I've got to find it. Was it uh, uh, Kermit Fraser? Yeah, he wrote. He wrote. Um, he wrote the the script. You know, so between the three of us, we developed all these characters, and and it had a really good run. About seventy thousand people saw it in Seattle, and it was wow. the Seattle Children's Theater Event of the Year in the Seattle Times, and it got a bunch of other good press. It was mentioned in, in uh, New York Times and New York Magazine. New York, yeah. New Yorker magazine. It was kind of a cool, cool show. And then, and then, um, and then what happened was um, about four other theaters around the country did it. And it was really hard to do. Um, it was a really expensive show to do because it had all these big gang scenes with all these kind of, it was a really big time show, not a small time, easy show to do. And I think a lot of people just kind of shied away from that. Cause I mean, there was like in, in theater, you got to hire a lot of actors. It becomes real expensive, you know? So it, it didn't really have the kind of life it should have had, you know. Um, and I think it was also kind of a little bit tamed down a little bit from what it maybe could have been as far as its overall effect because they're aiming it at children. And the other four theaters that did it were not children's theaters. It was more uh, regular theaters. And so I, I, I could have maybe put some material in there that would have been a little bit more provoked, a little bit more complex. So um, it was it was it was a, quite a show, and I actually have the original cast album, which I've been sitting on for quite some time because I couldn't get wow. the rights to release it, and I just recently got the rights to put it out um, okay. and for downloads and streams. And I'm going to probably do that. I've just got a lot of other things I'm doing, so I'm going to probably get to that. Thanks for bringing that up. I'd say I'm happy about that project. And I think yeah, it's yeah, it's cool. a very very interesting part of your bio. The the other thing that I found very interesting. Was yeah. that you spent a, a few years as a sports website journalist? That's sports correct. website, yeah, and that was yes, for uh, well, Seattle. not only not only sports web right sports website and also um, podcast. Oh. So I did what you're doing without the without the without the camera. I did a, a podcast uh, uh, starting in 2010 and going into uh, no starting in 2000 and nine and going up through 2016 i had a, a podcast called talking hoops which i talked basketball uh with uh, just uh, everybody from uh major names and kind of legends to just young kids that were aspiring basketball players to journalists to broadcasters to writers to you know all those kinds of people all over from people that work for everywhere from espn and major networks cbs and stuff all the way down to just the local the local press and and you know nba players and people like that all all the way down to just you know 16 year old you know aspiring college basketball players so i, I basically had a, a, week, a weekly podcast and did that and i also wrote a column for the local um 
ESPN affiliate of, of college basketball. And I also wrote, I was also the publisher of a sports site covering basketball and football for this area um, at, uh, for uh, uh, a network that was bought out by Yahoo. So I work, I worked in that field for like about from about 2005 till about 2016 for about 10 years, really a little bit more than that, probably overall. Yeah. As a side thing to make a little extra money. And actually that was a good reason why, how I was able to get this house built that I'm living in right now, you know, because wow. I was doing that and also playing gigs. So Seattle is a great sports town. People in Seattle, they love, they still love the Sonic and they haven't been. I know. Well, the Sonics are going to come back. I still believe where's the wood. <laughs> you <laughs> know, the last the time I went back. to Seattle, the football field was named Century Link and the baseball field was uh Senko Field. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, right. that's what it was. Um, yeah, they, they actually got a, they actually got a good baseball team now for the first time in a long time. Oh yeah, good team. Who knows how long they'll be till they screw it up? But that's okay. Well, so we'll hope for the best. <laughs> you guys are so lucky with the Yankees, and you know, it's, there's so many great. I mean, I had, I I used to go see a lot of sports when I was in New York, but I couldn't afford to go to many. But I'd go to Yankees games; they're really cheap in the bleachers, you know. And that was kind yeah, of fun. yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know what? Where in Seattle are you? Like Capitol Hill? Queen Anne area, Capitol Hill. Seattle. Those are those are those are neighborhoods that I grew up around. Um, I grew up by Green Lake, which is a place that a lot of people have, have maybe heard of, and it's kind of near yeah. the U District. Capitol Hill and Queen Anne are kind of south of that, closer to downtown. Um, but I don't live in Seattle. I, I actually the house I grew up in Seattle. Um, I, I still own it because I you know I've just kind of held held it together with my family and things, and I it's I rent it out. But I live over on cross what they call Puget Sound, where you have to take a ferry. You've heard about the ferries they have in Seattle? Oh, yeah. I've heard, I've heard of that. Yeah. yeah so I live on the, other side, of, on the other side of the uh, Puget Sound in a little town called Indianola, which is really kind of cool and pretty pretty laid back. And, uh, um, you know, it's just really nice. It's like I've really kind of – I don't I, I've been a city person my whole life, and I travel all the time to play gigs and do stuff, so I get plenty of time to, to be around people. But when I'm home, it's really nice and peaceful and uh, – my dog can run around without being on the leash and all that kind of fun stuff, you know, mellow. It's mellow. It's kind of, boy, you know, you guys are city. You guys are so much into the city thing. And I, you're sitting there thinking, oh, this guy's really dull and boring. But no, bottom no. line is, <laughs> bottom line is, you know, I've done a lot of stuff and I, it's there for me, but I find I'm able to get a lot done in this environment. It's, it's, a, you know, it's a little bit easier. That's just, yeah, that's really what it comes down to. a lot of distractions. I don't have people trying yeah. to steal my hubcaps in my front yard. Right. You know? <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's getting bad again in New York. You know, it's starting to I know, be I've like heard. the old days. I've heard. Yeah. I, yeah. My friend says it's getting back to the old ways a little bit, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Except, except there's no music scene. <laughs> there's no music scene. <laughs> let's get, let's bring the music scene back. That, that, you then know, it the, might be better. It the, might you be know, better the, if that happens. The hookers and the and the junkies can can That's, stay. Just bring the music back. Just bring the music back. <laughs> exactly. Now, one thing I wanted to ask you about, if you could elaborate um, on on this research you've been doing on Sonny uh, Sonny Boy Williamson, the great yeah, yeah. blues musician. I'm I'm very interested in that kind of stuff. Uh, what what have you been doing related to him? Holy mackerel! Well, um, that's what <laughs> happened after I finished with. Um, well, well, when I got this house. Uh, well, okay. In 2000, <laughs> in 2012, I got 
I left my job with uh, 710 ESPN radio doing that, that site. Cause I, I got a bet much better job as a writer. I had been working on it for a while and I got this job uh, as a managing partner um, in this research project about Sonny Boy Williamson. So I shifted my journalism kind of cap over to the music side as opposed to sports. And even though I did keep the sports thing going with the podcast for another uh, four years, I, uh, I just basically focused on Sonny Boy for, with most of my time, uh, other than my, the, playing, the gigs I was doing with playing gigs. And, of course, raising my kid and doing the family stuff I was doing. But the bottom line is um, I had always been into blues. I'd always been interested in Sonny Boy, um, going back to New York Dolls, actually. I first listened to Sonny Boy because the Dolls covered that song, Don't Start Me Talking. So I listened to some of his stuff. And then, but I really got into him, actually, when I did, when I was doing the research for Little Rock, I went back and really listened to a lot of uh, blues. And that was in 1994, 1995 to kind of get more locked in with the, the sound of 50s blues, the sound of chess records and sun records and modern records and all those labels and so i went back and listened to stuff and the guy that really stuck out for me was still sunny boy i go this guy's just there's something about him it's just he's got this some kind of energy that i just love and like tunes like help me um you know uh just there's a ton of them i mean keep your hands out of my pocket there's so many great great songs yeah and so many so many great songs and it's like i go man this is this stuff's great and so i met this guy who was like a a financial guy. He ran a financial company and he's kind of a wine connoisseur, kind of a, you know, sort of a, a guy that you wouldn't figure would be much of a rocker, really didn't know much about music, but he really loved Sonny Boy. And he was doing this research thing. I go, this is great. This is cool. And he had actually done a bunch of interviews of people who had many of whom, all of whom are pretty much gone now, like B.B. King and Junior Wells and oh, yeah. a lot of people. He'd done interviews of a bunch of people about Sonny Boy. And then he kind of had to put it aside, and he, but he finally got things kind of going enough with his company where he had the financing to kind of keep it going. But his health was also in very bad shape. So he needed help physically as well as just another person to help him with the research that maybe knew more about other areas of music. So um, it was a good fit for me, and I started working on this research, and I traveled around. I went to Mississippi, I mean, probably a dozen or more times. I flew into Mississippi, Jackson or Memphis Airport. And then um, also just all number of other places, you know, Cleveland, L.A., Austin, Texas, you know, all over Georgia, all of just doing research on Sunny Boy stuff. And then quite a few re- interviews overseas via Skype uh, with the help of some great European uh, people to help me out over there. And I just did a bunch of research on Sunny Boy. Um, we actually had it could have been done a lot sooner, but this guy's health and to some degree kind of his wanting to be involved when he really was physically that unable to really be engaged, uh, kind of put off this thing, being able to really get done for a long time. And then he died and then he died. And so what happened was then is his brother came and got involved and kind of acted like he wanted to, you know, finish it up because we were pretty much done. We had this manuscript of the book. We had a documentary film that was ready to go to production. We had a bunch of other projects, including a museum exhibit that I put together with a, a museum to do, or that I was in, you know, pretty conceptually had put together. It was close to being a deal. Um, and uh, and he said, well, I'm going to take a look at this. And so he kind of, he and I sort of worked on it for a little bit, about about a year of just kind of 
looking through everything to try to tell him what it was and explain it to him and his family. And he finally decided he didn't want to do anything with it. So it was very disappointing. And so I went out and got the financing to kind of take the ball and figured out what I could do on my own with my own project and was able to get the book written in luckily during 2020. Um, and, um, and then uh, in 2021, uh, and now 2022, I, uh, it finally, it's come, hopefully coming to the point where it's going to be ready to, to publish. Um, the uh, the re one reason it's taking a long time is there's uh, it's being edited and fact-checked, or he's being helped by a guy named Jim O'Neill, who is really fantastic. He's the uh, one of the co-founder of Living Blues Magazine, and he's got the access to the, probably the greatest archive of interviews published and unpublished. And he's just probably the most recognized and well-liked, I'll also add, uh, experts on the blues in the world. So I'm really fortunate to have him involved with it. Um, and it's, but he's been, it's been hard for him to get a lot done. Um, he's, he's kind of moving slow himself because of different things. Um, so, but it looks as if things are going to start, gonna, are going to be wrapping up here soon. So once he's done with it, that's that part of it, that's everything's pretty much in my control at that point to just tie everything down and get it and get it, release it and publish it. Well, when you, when you have that done, make sure you let us know because we will promote this for you. Okay. Yeah, that's cool. Well, I'll tell you, Sonny Boy's story is incredible. I mean, it, I will definitely let you yeah. know. And, um, and I, and I know there's a lot of people like you, um, who are into rock, who appreciate the, what he did. I mean, he, not right. only the, the songs that he did that so many people covered, but, um, but just his contributions, like, let me give you an example. Um, that show he did, King Biscuit Time, in right. uh, 1941, it it was the it was the first like really major show that anybody really knew much about. That anybody played blues on the electric guitar. Yeah, and that was the beginning of the electric guitar phase yeah. of blues. So yeah. it really was a groundbreaking show. And kick in also, kit drums. Yeah. This yeah. is the blueprint of American music. I don't know if you it, whether you're rock and roll, whether you're R and B, whether you're country music, all that it came yep. from that basic blueprint. Guitar player, drummer. In their case, he didn't have a bass player because you couldn't hear it on the radio because this is the way yeah, the radio was. So they had a piano player and a harmonica player, front guy that was out of his mind. And that that's rock and roll. That's country. That's R and B right there. You know, it, and it really, and it, and it really is, uh, it, it's, it's something that we can't lose because, uh, you know, this digital music has got all kinds of pluses, but I mean, real musicians playing in a band, I don't think you're ever, well, I mean, you, someday I can't say you would never, never duplicate with, with digital instruments, but they haven't done it yet. No, I don't think you can. I think no. you, there's, there's, there's something about that chemistry of those yeah. people playing together. Yeah. Playing and singing. Okay. Yeah. You, you can get sounds, yeah, okay, but yeah. there's no soul. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and, it, and it's, it's it's human beings. I mean, it goes before electronics. It goes before amplifications. People got together. They pounded on things. They they came up with different things that made noise, and they played together, and they played music, and they sang. And sometimes hitting, you know this, sometimes hitting the wrong note works. Yeah. And, and exactly. you're not going to get that in, a, in in digitized music. You know, A lot of people just don't want to hear the wrong note, and, and the sad part about it is that some of the great moments in music were were wrong notes. What was it? What's the? I don't know if you ever heard the quote from Miles Davis. He says, "There's no such thing as a wrong note. 
It's the note you play right after that matters. <laughs> and I think musicians can understand That's that, great. right? Yes. That's, <laughs> That's brilliant. That's brilliant. Yeah, it is. It is. All right, Jim, I want to talk to you about uh, some of the new stuff you've been doing over the last two years, three years. Uh, 2020, you came out with a release called Jokers, Idols, and Misfits. Yes. I love the title. That's a yes. Title. What's, yes. All, what's that all about? Well, I'll tell you, it, it's it's a collection of cover tunes, and okay. some of them are famous people that I've looked up to in life. Some of them are uh, people that I've worked with and are friends of mine. Some of them are just more obscure artists that I really, really liked but don't know. And uh, some of them are kind of a mixture of both, you know. So, yeah. so uh, it's kind of a, uh, you know, it's kind of, um, it's kind of a mixture of all that. It's just like cover songs. And uh, I thought it was kind of a unique idea for an album, and I really like it a lot. And the one before that was called Not Changing. It came out in 2019, and that was kind of like, sort of like my comeback album because it was all new original material. And I haven't really done one for a while. I've been so busy doing the sports thing and and the Sunny Boy thing, and and just right. playing gigs for a living and and raising a family and stuff. And I hadn't done much much new material, so I did a whole album of new material, and that was really cool. So I haven't done a new, an album of new material since like 2012, and even that was one that was kind of a, a, a only had about four new songs. There's a lot of older songs, so this was like a brand new album, and that that's that's a, a, I was really proud of, and that kind of got my career going and in the digital world and downloads and streams and that kind of whole world, and so uh, and that's when I hooked up with uh, Big Stir. And also Power Popaholic out there in New York. I don't know if you know Aaron Kupperberg. I, I, I'm friends with him on Instagram. And he's sometimes I, ta I tag things back and forth to him. Yeah, he's, he's, he's got good he knows stuff. The stuff. Yeah. So he, yeah. He, and I, he and I have been working on it too. He's been releasing. I have now five albums on his label for streams uh, um, uh, on with, through Bandcamp. And then I've also put all those, uh, except for Jokers, I put all those out on uh, through DistroKid that goes out to all the major platforms like Spotify and Apple yeah, music uh, and all that stuff. Yeah. It goes YouTube. out on all that stuff. That's cool. Yeah, so what do you have lined up now? What am I doing now? I'll tell you what I'm doing now. I'm working on a bunch of new, new songs. Um, I've got about 11 like demo tracks of which about, wow. I think four of them are covered cover tunes and I'm working on another uh 10 or 11 more i want to get at least about 20 or so tracks to pick from before i decide which ones to make into records i'm going to do a new album here soon and then um and then um and then beyond that um like i said i'm working on the sun finishing that sunny boy book and then my band is starting to really play again the jim bass night band we're we're really doing good we're, we're doing good shows doing quite a bit of solo solo shows and duo shows too i got a great band um uh sean and beth peabody sean plays bass and drums and he's even played guitar for me at times uh and he sings really well and he's a great entertainer too and his wife beth who just had their second baby but she's she's, she's like two months ago but you know she's uh she's just got one of these voices where she just sings in phenomenal pitch i mean just fantastic ear so she she and i and sean sing really well together and then michael rollins who's been with me for the since the beginning of the Jim Bass Night Band in New Year's Eve, December 31st, 1996. Um, he plays sax, flute, harmonica, and percussion, and, and he also sings too, and he writes some songs too. 
And then uh, he's also been the bass player for much of that time. He's been pretty much but a, the longest standing bass player in the band. And then the other guy that plays bass in the band currently is because Sean plays mostly drums is uh, Kurt Jensen. And he's a real solid drum, a bass player. That just That's all he does is fake, focus on playing bass and he does a good job um, and moving gear. Oh. So that's what we do. We work. Wow. 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 Yep. All right. Well, listen. I want to thank you for coming on, Jim, Jim Baznight. And when you're coming through New York City, you have to stop at the International Bar. And we, we will take care of you. Rob works there. Oh, okay. really? Yep. 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 Gosh. And, uh, definitely Gosh, come out and hang out with us. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so we'll get we'll we'll see you at the bar. And um, and I look forward to seeing you too, Rocker Mike. All right. We'll, definitely we'll, get, we'll get together and make this stuff happen. And I'll come to New York. I'll make sure I make sure I uh I'll bring my old old school street smarts. And if I can do <laughs> I'm a, I'm a it's like, it's like riding a bike. You never forget, man. Last time I was in New York, I went to, out to Brooklyn into places where I literally would have been dead yeah, in, in broad changed. daylight. And it was like 2, 3 in the morning. And people were looking at me because they're all wearing $1,000 coats. And I'm like, know. like you know. <laughs> yeah. That, that, you, that you're the bum, right? <laughs> it's funny. All right, Jim Bass Knight. Thank you for coming on. And uh, stay in touch yep. and let us know about that Sonny Boy Williamson book. Definitely. We definitely, definitely want to promote will. that. And I'll let you know about everything to do with, it, with what I'm doing. I'll, I'll keep you posted. You guys are doing a great job out there. This is a really fun show. Thank you. Thank you for letting me monopolize your time. I definitely took no. up 90% of the air. It was all oxygen. pleasure. It was <laughs> all pleasure. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you, sir. You take care. Nice now. to meet you. Nice way. to meet you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I'm getting lumped up with Rocker Mike and Rob Rossi. I'm getting lumped up with Rocker Mike and Rob Rossi. Well, I'm lumped up, but I'm okay. It's gonna get lumped up anyway. You better call back the pasta. Just getting lumped up with Rocker Mike and Rob Rossi. Getting lumped up with Rocker Mike and Rob Rossi.